So we're entering the uh, Christmas season, which means about a, a few weeks break from our study through the book of Luke. And I think I can safely say about the Christmas season that at my age, I've grown a little ambivalent about it. You know, on the one hand, I can be just as sappy and sentimental as anybody can in sort of driving through the square late at night and seeing it all beautifully lit up like a Christmas tree. But I think I'm also old enough to know that there are certain things that can rise up and bubble up to the surface during this season that honestly are really not so pleasant. And in order to kind of unpack this and illustrate this and kick off our series, I wonder if you own uh, a Thomas Kincaid painting. Because if you haven't, I'll bet you that you've at least seen one. Thomas Kincaid became uh, famous uh, sort of as being the, the, the painter of light, a title which he actually gave to himself. Originally from California, when he was in the middle of the 1980s, he sort of rose to prominence by painting these lightings that were, that were use, that using light in certain ways. And if you've seen them, they're these very idyllic kind of pastoral settings that he puts these pictures into. You're, you're sitting by a glowing main street or a, or a mountain stream, maybe a, um, a stone cottage with a garden that just seems to have the light coming out from within it, right? I strolled into a, a, a Thomas Kincaid gallery on our, on our vacation uh, in California this summer, and there really is something like truly hypnotic about these things. Uh, they're just very soothing to kind of look at because they're just so uh, 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 sweet in that way. Well, Kincaid, it turns out, was a very public Christian. Uh, he was often quoted as someone who very explicitly wanted for people to get uplifting and inspirational messages from his painting, sometimes even including uh, a Bible verse at the bottom of each of the uh, frames. And in that sense, Kincaid was the definitive nostalgic painter, I think, at least of this particular century. And he went on to become really one of the most prolific and wealthy artists in the entire world, uh, producing thousands of works. He opened this uh, uh, chain of galleries around the country uh, and found ways to sort of merchandise his work that were, that were amazing. I, I remember the year uh, when Walmart gift cards came with Thomas Kincaid paintings on them, for goodness sakes. Um, and it made him one of the wealthiest artists in the world for years. But, of course, because of that, he did not come without his critics. Um, you know, he was criticized almost from the very beginning of his ascendancy as, uh, by the art world as just being sort of too schmaltzy. Uh, there was one particular uh, critic who referred to him as the, um, uh, as the kitsch master. <laughs> um, they called his work garish and overly sentimental. And they hated this, uh, what looked like a rank commercialization of the art that they, he was selling. And for them, it was just the kind of art that they, that they hated. Why? Well, I found a quote that, you know, will, I think, sum this up. This guy said, Kincaid arguably is one of the most loved and hated painters alive. To his millions of adoring fans, he represents the triumph of populism and wholesome family values over the elitism and intellectual snobbery of most art. The victory of the heart over the mind, that is. But to his detractors, he represents the triumph of sub-mediocrity and the commercialization and homogenization of painting. <laughs> Listen to this. Kincaid's detractors also dislike him because his work is terrible. Malden, sickeningly sentimental vision of a world where everything is as soothing as a warm cup of hot chocolate with marshmallows on a cold December day. 
You know, don't hold back. Tell us honestly what you really think about his stuff. But what's he saying? He's saying Kincaid is not real enough. You know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't look and portray life as if there's no problems. Escapism is for cowards. The world is broken. And any art that fails to honor that fact is substandard, right? I find it kind of interesting to put some of Kincaid's work up in front of you because I think your reaction to it would, would tell us all a little bit about how you apprehend the world. You know, for a lot of us, we've, so, we've really held on to this idea, this desperate idea that you can and should have light coming in through your life and a hope for better times and, and, and warmer feelings. But there are others that you gave that hope up a long time ago. You know, you, the darkness sort of created this deep-rooted cynicism that's summed up in that word, that word, whatever. For you, you know, the, it's all going to pot in the end, so why care? It's dark, and there's nothing that we can do about it. So, in the midst of that scene, along comes the Christmas season. And the world is populated by both types of these people. You know, there are some people who, you know, put on their Christmas music the day after Labor Day. And, of course, they do it, you know, in the privacy of their, of their noise-canceling headphones, lest they be caught and scorned for their cheapening of Thanksgiving by the Thanksgiving police. You know who you are. But here's my question this morning. Which is it? You know, is Christmas warm pastels and sort of soothing fireside chats? Or is it yet another reminder that your life just isn't what it's supposed to be? And everyone else seems to be enjoying a joy that you don't have. In other words, is the nostalgia surrounding Christmas part of the fun for you? Or is it the very thing that just seems to make you miserable when it shows up this time of year? Well, I want to begin a series of sermons over the next couple of weeks that I've entitled Redeeming Nostalgia. Because we need to come to grips with how a Christian should feel about this season. What is the right way to celebrate Christmas? Where is the schmaltz taking us? Is it helping us or is it hurting us? And how do I survive the holidays? And so this morning, I want to grapple with the topic of the problem of nostalgia. And I hope you can see it right off, because the problem with nostalgia is, is it sort of splits us up. We get bifurcated by it into into either a childish sentimentalism over here, or sort of a dark cynicism over there, depending on how it lands on us. But how do we know whether the nostalgia is true or not? Is Christmas lying to us? And I'll confess, I, I felt this firsthand, you know, almost at the same time when there's this wash of sentimentality, right behind it comes, you know, just that thing. <laughs> you know, you just finished your outdoor Christmas lights, right? You climbed a precariously tall ladder to, to hang the wreath at such a height to where even the neighbors on the next street over can see it. It's so high. And then You went to Home Depot and cleaned them out of all of their little white twinkle lights because, you know, there was just this space over here that just needed something, right? And so you step back in the street and you sort of take it all in and you just sigh. The house just looks like a big present when you look at it. But it's almost at that very moment that something else creeps in. You wonder if you look a little bit foolish to your neighbors, which makes you think whether or not your children were really raised to know the real meaning of Christmas. And you remember that you have to go to work in the morning, and man, was there ever 
a terrible time for the office to descend in the chaos that it is. And you think back to how much things have changed since you were a child, and then you wonder whether you had a happy childhood to begin with. It's Christmas, right? Because the nostalgia that swamps us, it seems, can oftentimes betray us. And we're left sometimes wishing that the season would just end. Well, look, in our passage that we're looking at this morning, the prophet Isaiah is delivering a prophecy against an evil, godless, and tyrannical king whose name was Ahaz. And under the reign of Ahaz, the people of Israel were suffering under daily oppression and injustice. But Isaiah comes and says, I'm not only here to give it perspective, but I also want to give you hope. Because the Bible confronts the problem of nostalgia. Because it takes both of our reactions to it very seriously. It's not a Pollyanna kind of cross your fingers, hope that things get better religion. It's profoundly realistic. But at the same time, it shows us the reason why we're nostalgic in the first place. Because there's hope on the horizon. How does it do that? Well, I think through three ways. Number one, we're going to see Isaiah give us a lens of the light. Number two, the freedom. And number three, the hope of what's coming, about this light that's breaking in. The light, the freedom, and the hope. Let's look first of all at the light in verses 2 and 3. And the first prediction that Isaiah gets is, is that there's a light that's breaking in. One of the reasons why we associate Christmas with light is because of passages like these. Because when the Messiah was going to come, it would be like an inbreaking of light, which is great news for the people that heard it. Verse 3 says that the joy that comes from seeing this light is like the joy you have when you bring the harvest in. I realize in a society that's sort of left uh, an agrarian lifestyle, it's a little bit hard for us to understand this, but when the harvest came in, there was excess for everyone. Uh, you know, you saw the fruit of the labor and you, you overate to fullness. You invited your friends in to kind of share in the excess. Sound familiar? I realize that it's sort of spiritually trendy at this time to, uh, you know, sort of decry the commercialization of Christmas and the super spiritual Christians, you know, look around and think that gift giving is just a waste of time. <laughs> but come on. I mean, give, giving of gifts is sort of a, a picture of what we're anticipating, that the joy that Jesus has brought. There's theology behind the look in our children's eyes on Christmas morning when we see that that's what he wanted to bring to us in what he broke in to give. Now, why would the coming of salvation being associated with light be such a big deal to these people? Well, because we're in darkness. Underline that word in, in verse 1 where Isaiah talks about a gloom that has descended. That word gloom there is translated in other places throughout the Old Testament as the word darkness. Hence, you get the contrast between darkness and light. And I just want to encourage you in, in, in this morning that the Bible is really emotionally sophisticated. Even a document that we know for a fact was written thousands of years ago has a prophet looking out over a body of people, and realizing that they have a cultural depression. There's a pervasive fear. Then he diagnoses it and says, here's the reason why this is happening is because of the oppression that you're going through, because life can get hard. And as he does so, he looks and, and validates us and being at least be able to say, now I know that I'm not crazy. Lots of people have felt this before. Why? Because it's like being in darkness. Look, here's my point. Biblical Christianity is not an escapist religion. It takes your inner gloom seriously enough to talk about it and address it. Because one of the most sort of crushing things about this season can be its sense of isolation. 
You know how you don't want to tell anybody about it because you don't want to bring everybody else down so you can't talk about it? But at least the Bible gets you in the moment of your heartache. It gets us in the midst of that darkness with a shaft of light that breaks through. Uh, As I was doing some study for this, I came across a story about a man, a French geologist of all things, who in 1962 decided he would explore uh, a rather large glacier cave that had been discovered uh, in the French city of Nice. And uh, as he put himself down there, he decided that he would let his body dictate his behavior while encapsulated in this incredibly dark world. He kept a record of his activities and telephoned his team on the outside to talk about when he slept or when he ate or when he woke up. But his team never told him what time it was. Well, after his time in the cave was over, they called him and said, your time is up, which was supposed to be two months, and it was. But the guy, his name was Michael Schieffer, he said, I don't believe that that's true. He thought that only a month had passed. And what they discovered afterwards was that his psychological perception of time had been completely distorted by the darkness. The doctors even went on as far to say that even his body rhythms had lost sort of pattern because they didn't have the light. And I think there's a great analogy in that. When darkness moves over a culture, everything gets disoriented. Even our sense of time gets twisted. Why else do we talk about the days just dragging on? Um, you know, and oftentimes our perception of ourselves is wrong. Uh, we're terrible judges of ourselves, sometimes giving ourselves way too much benefit of the doubt, and then other times being way too hard on ourselves. Why? Because we live in darkness. We're disoriented. We can't see right. My point is this. The problem of nostalgia is that it is a longing for light, for someone to break in, to see things as they really are, so we can get clarity again. And that's what Isaiah promises is coming in the light. But number two, he says, the other promise is that there is freedom to come. Look at verses four and five. What you get Isaiah talking about there are symbols of a people who are in bondage. And do you see the words that he uses to describe them? He talks about a yoke and a staff and a rod. Those are imagery of slavery, uh, sort of things that talk about this sensation of waking up in the morning and feeling like you're just going to get the beat down by all of the circumstances around you. <laughs> and I was wondering how to illustrate this, and it suddenly occurred to me, I don't know that i got to work too hard at illustrating this. Because has there ever been a season in the near American history when so many of us feel unfairly oppressed as a, as a cultural minority? We all feel this way. Everyone feels victimized in our world today, it seems like. And the tragedy, I think, is is we're learning that the more victimized you feel, the more likely you are to victimize others. Turn around is fair play, we feel like. Why is this such such a big deal? Because oppression and bondage, when they exist uh, in a a culture, are bad for collective peace. We're upset. But the promise that Isaiah makes is, is those days are over. They're ending. Because the tools that they use there in verse 5 to wage this war are going to get burned. Look what he says. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, he says we're going to be done with all of that. But you're going to be able to tell how we were done with it. And that's what you get at the end of verse 4. Because he says in those days, it'll be like it was in the days of Midian. Ah, 
Anybody remember the story of Midian? You know, when Israel was marching into the uh, uh, promised land, they were dealing with all kinds of enemies from within and without. And one time they faced the terrible armor of, uh, army of Midian. You can read about it in Judges 6 and 7. Well, God calls a judge to come and bring rescue, a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon is raised up with an army to go and fight the Midianites. But of course, God deals with him and says, no, I actually want you to do something different. I'm going to let you deal with these people with 300 people. So Gideon is going to go fight the entire army with just 300 people. But you know the story. It's awesome. God uses the sound that the 300 men make to confuse the Midianites. And you know what they end up doing? They end up killing each other. God confuses them, and all of a sudden we begin to see the Midianites destroying themselves. And actually, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this is vintage Yahweh. Okay, Because so often in the Old Testament, what you find is that God is going to bring an end to oppression by causing it to kind of eat its own tail, which is not the way we want it to happen. We kind of want God to sort of deal with oppression with uh, you know, a bolt of lightning, bam, you know, kind of strikes down my people. Uh, we want that person just to drop, you know, suddenly just drop dead in the middle of everything. God, take their life away from them. We want justice. But see, the way God oftentimes deals with us is, more often than not, is he simply removes his protective hand and allows our evil to run its course. Because that sin that drives our rebellion and causes us either to you know, take the hurting, uh, or to participate in the hurting of other people, or refuse to do anything about it when we see it, actually contains the seeds of its own downfall right there built within. And I think you can see this all the time whenever oppressive systems begin to collapse. The first one that popped into my mind was the end of the presidency of Richard Nixon back in the mid-70s. I'm fascinated by Richard Nixon. Lots of sermon illustrations from that guy's life. On the last day of his presidency, he delivers an address to his staff. Do you remember this? Some of you do. Now, mind you, the man had just been exposed as overseeing and approving of a highly illegal cover-up of some more than a little questionable activities uh, coming out of his re-election campaign that we now know as Watergate. Well, Nixon was known to be a very paranoid man and cared very much about what other people thought about him, so he went out to get dirt on his political enemies. Um, and, but for those of us who are old enough to remember, it all backfired on him. And in the end, he was caught and his plans were exposed and he was really disgraced in many ways for a lot of his pettiness. Well, in his address to his staff at the very end, he says this towards the end of his speech. He says, but remember, always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. It's a fascinating speech because many people noticed the irony that it looked as if Nixon was almost owning what he had done, that his own paranoia and fear had brought about his own destruction. And Isaiah is saying, that is what's going to happen. God will likely bring deliverance from your oppression by allowing those systems to meet their own end because it's built in. It's ironic. The powerful will be brought down by their power. The violent destroyed by their own violence. In many ways, our nostalgia is a longing for things to be right. The way they were when they used to be right. And so Isaiah has a promise for us. He says, just wait, because somebody's coming. Which brings me to the third point. 
We see the light and we see the freedom. But thirdly, we find that there's a hope that's coming. A hope that's coming in verses 6 and 7. Because what this means is that there's a light that's dawning so we can have legitimate hope. And you see it in those three verses in 4, 5, and 6 that all begin with the word for. And the last one there is the sort of the famous one, you know. We find that those uh, uh, descriptions of Jesus are appropriately famous because we find out that what this person does is he's going to carry the entire government. In other words, it's not just going to be an application of redemption to individuals, but he's also going to redeem the structures that those individuals establish that themselves are extending the curse. It's going to be society-wide, not just for individuals. In other words, you can finally have hope when this person has come because peace and justice and righteousness will reign, we find in verse 7. And then we get the list of names, which we just love to recite. The last three of those names are descriptions, I believe, of the character of this man. That when he comes, he would be God himself incarnate among us. He will be the light. He will be the bringer of freedom. But for a moment, consider that first title that he gets that he will be a wonderful counselor. When you're describing a great king, is that the first thing that pops into your mind? You know, he's going to be a great counselor. Does that pop into your head? (laughs) Why does he speak that way? Well, uh, Tim Keller has a wonderful little Christmas book that I was reading a while back in preparation for this series where he talks about why they would call him that. Here's what he says. He says, why is he called a counselor? When you're going through something very difficult, it's good to talk to someone who has walked the same path who knows personally what you've been going through. If God has really been born in a manger, then we have something that no other religion even claims to have. It is a God who truly understands you from the inside of your experience. There is no other religion that says that God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that He knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice to be tortured, to die. Listen to this. Christmas shows that He knows what you are going through. When you talk to Him, He understands. You know why this is such a big deal? It's because only in Christianity do you have a God who sort of enters into His creature situation. He doesn't stand aloof. He doesn't watch you from a distance. He's intimate. He's personal. He's close by. And it's comfort for people who realize that Christmas can be so isolating. In a given calendar, are there there times in which you can really feel loneliness like you do during Christmas? You start start longing for for comfort or pining pining for the old days, you know? The old days before Daddy passed away. The old days before he broke up with me. The old days before she divorced me. The old days when before the kids had moved so far away, they'll never seem to come visit. The old days before things just got so messed up. But Isaiah's promise is, is God is with us. A literal translation of the word Emmanuel. He's drawn near to give us what we're longing for. That, as it turns out, is the only resolution to the problem of nostalgia. And something that we'll talk about in the weeks to come. You know, to finish this out, Thomas Kincaid, interestingly enough, you may not realize, ended his life very poorly. In, um, good, on Good Friday of 2012, Kincaid was found dead in his home. 
and in his system was a deadly toxic mix of alcohol and drugs, he had OD'd. His marriage had ended in divorce some months earlier, though he was seeing a new girlfriend. And even after his death, his fortune was just fought over by friends and family who just wanted a piece of his excess. It's, it's, a, it's a depressing story because the darkness overtook him. But the simple I want to point to, to suggest to you this morning is, what if the glowing, warm light of that man's paintings were so beloved because people are looking for that light? It happens every time you walk into a house that's decked out in twinkle lights. You just have to sit and stare. And what if all that longing and for the mystery and, and, and beauty of that moment is really just a memory trace in my soul to know that I was created to know the real light of the world and that, what the, and that that was what my nostalgia was pointing to, that we were built for something that we intuitively know we don't have, at least by our own accord. See, because years after Isaiah's prophecy is given, a poor son of a carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth is being executed for a crime he did not commit, a victim of powerful injustice. And he makes all kinds of statements up on that cross that he died on that his followers love to uh, pay a lot of attention to. But right as he gets to the end of his time on the cross, do you remember what happened? The eyewitnesses who were there said that the entire countryside was plunged into a deep darkness. It was as if the father said, no human eye is going to look at the profoundness that's going to happen between me and my son in this great exchange. It was too holy for our eyes. But in that moment, Jesus, if he is going to take our darkness from us, had to be submerged into it in order to absorb its curse. So that when he emerges from the grave three days later, he comes and breaks forth during the resurrection as the shaft of light that takes away the gloom. There's this wonderful little meditation by C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles where he talks about this, and it reminds him of a pearl diver. Here's what he says. He says, One may think of a diver glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through green and warm water and down into the black and cold water, through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. But then, up again, back to color and to light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. But down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. See the point? Jesus is the diver who is plunged into the cold, murky depths that for many of us Christmas can oftentimes be what does he do? He comes back to rescue the pearl, the jewel of value that he wanted, which is yours and I's hearts. So here's my question. What if that is where our nostalgia is leading us? Wouldn't it change the way we thought about the season? Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, it's not that bad. We're happy that it's Christmas. And for that soul, Father, would you remind them of the joy that really is behind even the, the, the dressings that we put up around our season? And Father, for other people, we know for a fact that it's hard and the season can be crushing. 
Father, would you draw near to even that person and speak to them in the midst of their longing? That you are indeed the light, that you have come to bring freedom so that we can have hope. And that there is a child that is born and it has been unto us. It is given to us. Father, we pray that we would celebrate that. That we would long for your coming as we sing, Oh, come, Emmanuel, come. And that we would rejoice in the midst of it. Would you hear our singing as a response to your word this morning? We ask it all in Jesus' name.